everyone. Welcome to Alan Overy's Trust Us, and this is the second installment. My name is Regina Loy. I'm a senior associate in the APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Group, and I'll be your host for today. Well, we have a very interesting and very topical discussion lined up for today. As we continue social distancing measures in Hong Kong, Singapore, and around the world, we've been approached by clients and colleagues on a number of interesting issues and challenges that they're facing day to day while working remotely. I'll be shortly joined by two colleagues to run you through today's two deep dives. First, Tim Beach, partner and head of the APAC Corporate Trust Group, with whom we'll be discussing the virtual bondholder meetings into today's climate, followed by senior associate Holly Hart, with whom I'll be discussing virtual e-signings and best considerations for practice for trustees and agents. Now we've blocked out 30 minutes in your diaries, but we're aiming to keep this tight and let you get on with your busy days. So with that being said, I'd like to introduce my first co-presenter, Tim Beach. Hi, Tim. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Regina. And welcome again to everyone that's joined us today. Uh, we're looking forward to the next half an hour with you and hopefully discussing a couple of interesting topics. Great, Tim. Let's dive into our first topic. We're in the midst of a global pandemic, but work has certainly not stopped for us in the corporate trust world. Issuers and investors will want to know that they're able to manage their books of debt in the normal manner, and we've actually seen an increase in liability management exercises. Would you be able to give our guests some color as to what's happening in the market and why we're seeing an increase in liability management? Yes, of course. Uh, obviously, it's entirely normal uh, in times of general economic crisis, um, as we're currently experiencing around the world, for, for bond issuers to need to consider different ways to restructure or amend the terms of their outstanding debt. Yeah, obviously, if issuers are in severe distress, then they might need to go down a formal restructuring or insolvency route, such as an Indonesian PKPU or a Hong Kong scheme of arrangement, for example, in order to restructure all of their outstanding debt. But if the amendments uh, or relief that they need relate just to one series of bonds, for example, then they can conduct a liability management exercise in order to get to the desired outcome. LM exercises like that might take the form of tender or exchange offers or, or simply be consent solicitations in which issuers would be asking bondholders to agree to certain amendments to the terms of their bonds, for example, reductions in coupon, relaxation in, in covenants, extensions of maturity, things like that, uh, sometimes in exchange for, for a small consent fee. The other common driver for LM exercises is regulatory or, or legal change. So on that front, for example, we expect to see a significant uptick in LM work as we head towards LIBOR cessation at the end of, of next year. And we'll be coming back to both uh, liability management in more detail as well as LIBOR issues in, in future sessions. Mm, okay, thanks for that update. With so much activity on the horizon, that's probably going to cause some issues with physical meetings um, to affect resolutions in light of the government restrictions on public gatherings. Now, I've attended and chaired quite a few bondholder meetings here in Hong Kong, and I'm just running through the number of participants in my head from the issuer, the trustee, the chairperson, teller, proxies, and even bondholders should they wish to attend. The number far exceeds four or five, which is the number restricted on public gatherings in Hong Kong and Singapore, or Hong Kong from Friday and currently in Singapore. Um, some of our listeners might be interested to know why commercial parties can't just go ahead and choose an alternative to physical meetings uh, to get around the restrictions. So could you give our guests some color as to why they can't just go ahead with things like written resolutions or electronic consents? Yes, of course. Obviously, the answer to, to that question depends somewhat on the terms of the, the specific documents. But if we consider the way we'd expect standard documents to be drafted, most modern deals will allow for consents to be solicited at meetings of holders by way of written resolutions or by way of electronic consents. 
we added electronic consents to the arsenal following the, the global financial crisis years during which we saw uh, large numbers of very inefficient physical meetings being held and we were looking for more efficient ways to to solicit consents from holders However, yeah, even though that's the modern drafting, a more dated trust deed, it, it may only allow for physical meetings or written resolutions. And even where you do have those, uh, those alternative options, you could go the electronic consent route, you could go a written resolution route. Yeah, in practice, we still see issuers want to hold bondholder meetings. And there's a, there's a good reason for that. It's to take advantage usually of a lower quorum or lower voting thresholds. What you typically find with written resolutions and electronic consents is that they're going to require somewhere between probably 75 percent maybe even 100 percent in some older deals of the whole series to vote positively in order for a resolution to be passed and that's often a very high hurdle um whereas typically proposals you'd expect to be able to be passed at a bondholder meeting by a significantly lower turnout and so the meeting process is still often the best choice if there's a, a widely held bond or, or there's a real concern about bondholder apathy. Mm, the commercial drivers that you mentioned make a lot of sense and can see why parties want to go ahead to hold physical meetings. Um, can we go on to discuss the question that a lot of our clients and colleagues want us to consider then? Is it possible to convene a virtual no holder meeting under the terms of the trust deed? The short answer to that is yes. Uh, the standard procedures for bondholder meetings don't prohibit virtual meetings, although, of course, equally, they don't make specific provision for them. So for that reason, there are a number of practical steps that we would advise trustees to take with respect to the meeting procedures to ensure that they're robust and, and not susceptible to challenge if, if the meeting is going to be held virtually. It's important to note, though, that the meeting is not necessarily going to be entirely virtual. When considering specifying the time and the place of the meeting, for example, to comply with the standard requirements of bond documentation, the meeting can be properly viewed as being a physical meeting, which is actually being held wherever the chairperson happens to be. The virtual aspect is just that the attendance of other meeting participants will be by telephone or, or video conference. And although I've mentioned that typical bond documentation doesn't expressly allow for virtual attendees, there is recent English case law which confirms that the word meeting, the description of a meeting, it, it doesn't require a physical meeting with everyone present in one place. And, and they specifically said in that case that given modern technology, the same result can be achieved without all the participants of the meeting being physically face to face. They could be electronically in each other's presence so they could hear and be heard and see and be seen. So in other words, provided the attendees can fully participate in the business of the meeting, then it should be considered a valid meeting. That case concerned a shareholder meeting which was convened under the UK Companies Act. And you know, that the reason we think that's relevant is because the bondholder meetings that, that we're all very familiar with originally derived from UK shareholder meeting provisions. And so our view is that a court is very likely to view the, the requirements for a bondholder meeting in very much the same way as it would for a shareholders meeting. Mm. Thank you very much for that analysis. That makes a lot of sense. And just so we can be clear on all bases, because I'm sure that a lot of listeners are wondering, um, what's your view on whether trustee discretion is required in order to affect virtual meeting procedures? 
It's a very good question. You know, obviously, the exercise of any discretion by a trustee needs to be considered very carefully. And actually, that's another topic we'll return to at a later date, and we'll look at a bit more detail around uh, how trustees should should look at exercises of discretion. But on this occasion, um, in relation to the question of whether a formal modification is, is going to be required in order to include express virtual meeting provisions, uh, our view is, is no, it, it's not. Um, the reason for that is, as I've, I've mentioned, our view is that a standard trustee doesn't prohibit a virtual uh, meeting or virtual attendance at a meeting, uh, although there are likely to be those additional procedures and, and steps that are, that are necessary in order to, to make it work practically. And many of, of, of our listeners, I think, will be familiar with the fact that at the end of a typical meetings provision section in, in the trust deed, there will be a trustee's power to pres prescribe further or other regulations con concerning the attendance or voting at a meeting. And that is intended to cater for situations where there are changes in market practice over time, or as in the current COVID case, for unforeseen events. So in our view, it's entirely proper for uh, the trustee as a matter of principle to prescribe different procedures using that power in order to allow bondholders to exercise their rights to attend and vote at a meeting despite unforeseen restrictions. And that fits well within the trustee's general mandate to protect the interests of the bondholders. Perfect. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are breathing a sigh of relief to know that a formal exercise of discretion will not be required. Um, now, in relation to the power that you just mentioned, it seems quite unilateral and wide ranging. Are there any considerations for the trustee to think about before exercising the power? Are there any consultation requirements or can they just make decisions on their own? The power typically doesn't require any other party's approval of, of any new regulations, but you might sometimes see that consultation with the issuer is required. That's sometimes something which gets negotiated in and, and isn't particularly objectionable. In any event, to be prudent, we would suggest it's appropriate for the trustee to consult with the issuer in most cases where there's a virtual meeting being uh, proposed. Given that the issuer's focus is very much likely to be on getting its consent through as quickly and efficiently as possible, I think it's unlikely that they're going to object to the technical steps which the trustee is proposing to, uh, to allow for that to happen. You mentioned earlier that there are some practicalities that trustees and as well as commercial parties should think about in order to affect virtual meeting procedures. Can we run through some of these now? Um, in relation to notifying, to notifying bondholders with respect to a virtual meeting, what, what are the steps that you should be taking? It's definitely very important that holders are made aware of the possibility that the meeting might be held virtually as early as possible. And I, you know, ideally, that would be in the notice which convenes the meeting. It might be at that stage that it isn't certain if the meeting will be virtual or not, but there's no reason why you can't at least flag that possibility in the notice with further details to follow if necessary. Uh, so, you know, if anyone who's listening today would like to, you know, to discuss what that wording might look like, then then do get in touch with us. In that first notice, we would recommend encouraging bondholders to cast their votes by proxy and avoid attending in person to minimize the risk of holders having to attend virtually. In practice, yeah, that's really how it happens most of the time anyway, but emphasizing the point in the context of a potentially virtual meeting can't hurt. 
Okay, and with the possibility of a remote attendance, um, I think one of the biggest concerns will be how to best secure the platform and how to best verify the identities of the attendees, especially where, say, the chairman or the teller might not be familiar with individuals. Are there any thoughts on these points? Yeah, that, that's right. You know, it is something that needs to be thought through and, and the appropriate steps need to be taken. So, you know, first off, we would recommend that the, the telephone or video conference facility is set up by the host alone. So, so there's there's control over that from, from the organizers of the meeting. Um, to limit the risk of unauthorized distribution of the access details, we'd suggest that each virtual attendee should only be emailed the video or audio conference details shortly before the meeting starts. And the, the biggest issue or the biggest question obviously is around verification of attendees. If we assume that the bonds are in the ICSDs, the tabulation agent will have received ID details and, and email addresses of the individuals who are planning to attend the meeting. So we'd recommend that the, the chairperson or, or a delegate should email each person who's asked to attend ahead of the meeting to obtain a copy of their ID to enable them to match the details of the ID uh, and the person to, to the details provided by the tabulation agent. On that point, it's obviously easier if the meeting's going to be uh, held by, by video conference so that you can actually physically see the people uh, who are attending and, and that makes it more straightforward to, to manage the ID. But you know, there's, a, there's obviously a route to do that via the, you know, the phone option as well. That's all very practical, excellent advice. And I think that's a lot for our listeners to digest. So thank you for that. Now, moving forward, um, in relation to a post-COVID world, are there any considerations that parties think about for new money deals going forward? Have you seen any language in the market, for example, in relation to the meetings provisions in a trust deed? Yeah, I think we're all looking forward to a post-COVID world, aren't we? Mm -hmm. um, but yes, in relation to the language, um, we're currently finalizing some standard virtual meeting language um, that will be used in, in A&O deals going forward. Um, yeah, whilst, as, as I've already said, I don't think that's strictly necessary, we have an opportunity to do that and so we think it makes sense to clarify you know a few short points around the fact that this is an acceptable um, way to, to approach it and, and and a couple of practical details the key one of those i think is that the place of the meeting doesn't need to be a physical place and can simply be entirely virtual you know by telephone call or, or video conference um, and our view, you know, from a more sort of conceptual level is that the new virtual meeting wording should be as broadly drafted as possible. Obviously, at the moment, we're coping with a situation where we're having to try and make virtual meetings work in the context of our existing documentation to meet the, the circumstances we're dealing with in the world. But we see no reason, actually, why that should remain the case, you know, as you say, post-COVID. Actually, this is a flexibility which is probably going to be very valuable and very helpful for, for issuers and other parties involved. So, um, you know, we're proposing that the wording that goes in will allow this simply to be a choice, that, that the, the issuer, the trustee, whoever is convening the meeting will be able to choose to hold it virtually if they wish to, without any, any particular reason for that being the case. And so again, you know, if anyone would like to, to see that, that new proposed language or have a chat about it, then, then do please get in touch. Great, thank you so much, Tim. I think that's been immensely helpful for our listeners and you've raised some points for further investigation in the future. So thank you very much and I'll say bye. Thanks very much.
A reminder to our listeners of our client bulletin, bondholder meetings in the time of COVID-19, virtually okay, which is available on the ANO website, or you may email any member of our team for a copy. And a reminder that if any of the topics that we just discussed is particularly interesting, or you have questions, or if you find yourself facing a virtual meeting and you'd like to discuss the suggested meeting procedures we just discussed, please feel free to get in touch with us. Okay, now moving on to our next topic, virtual e-signings in the time of COVID-19 and best considerations for practice for trustees and agents. To discuss this, I'm being joined by my colleague, Holly Hart. Hi, Holly, thanks for joining us. Hello, Regina. It's uh, nice to have the Hello answers again. and questions for once. Yes, hi again. No, uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, for having a chat with me today. Great, thank you. Can so, we start with e yeah, e-signings, where should we begin? So let's begin with a really basic question, if that's okay with you. What do we mean when we refer to e-signings? A lot of our clients will be familiar with the practice of printing out a signature page, signing it, and then returning it by PDF format. What's the difference between what I just mentioned and e-signings using facilitation software? And then what's the scope of the term? As the practice I just mentioned is something that a lot of our signatories might not have access to at this time during COVID-19. Yes, of course. So you're right. Our clients are all very familiar with that process of executing documents in counterpart by signing, uh, scanning, emailing back PDF signature pages with originals to follow. This well accepted practices is recognized by the courts. What we're talking about in this context, though, is when you cannot physically get pen to paper, as many of us cannot in this new virtual world that we live in. So when we talk about e-signings, we are talking about electronic signatures and consequently executing documents in one of the following ways. Firstly, where a person accesses a document through a web-based e-signature platform, such as DocuSign that we as a firm use and clicks to have their name in a typed or handwriting format automatically inserted into the document in the appropriate place. So next to their signature block. Secondly, where the person signs on a screen using their hand or a light pen or a stylus and the actual touch screen to write their name electronically. Thirdly, where a person electronically pastes their signature, for example, as a JPEG or a PDF um, into an electronic version of the relevant document in, in the right spot. And finally, where a person just simply types their name into the document. Okay, thanks for that rundown. Would you be able to run through some of the pros and cons of some of the uses that you mentioned? Of course. Uh, there are benefits and notes of cautions for each of these approaches. The benefits of using an e-signature platform are exactly as you would imagine with a product that was made specifically for the purpose. They offer security features such as SMS authentication that improves the security of the document and adds to the evidential weight of the signature. They also automatically create an audit trail that records when documents were signed and the actual IP addresses that access them. As with all tech products, the key risk is security. So signing platforms are cloud-based and therefore parties must be comfortable with the platform's information security credentials. Having said that, this risk can be mitigated with cooperation between the parties in agreeing how the data will be managed. For example, uploading the documents immediately prior to signing and then deleting them from the platform after each party has downloaded their electronic original. Uh, with respect to signing on screen using a light pen or stylus or your hand, um, the benefits of doing so include obviously that it requires very little tech know-how or setup and is generally accessible for most of us. Also, it's using the signatory's own handwriting, so it can be checked against a specimen signature, which is a practice that all of our clients are, are very familiar with. These same benefits apply to where a person electronically pastes their signature as the JPEG or the PDF uh, into an electronic version of the relevant document. 
Finally, the option of simply typing your name into the document is similarly low tech and generally accessible, but is without the added benefit of being able to check against any relevant encumbrance certificate or other list of authorised signatories. The use of these last three options um, all present similar risks, however. Without an additional means of authentication, there is little evidence that the signatory applied the signature themselves, which is the e-signing equivalent of physically signing. It's also problematic for documents required to be witnessed. Having said that, again, parties can mitigate these risks by agreeing on practical ways to evidence and record that the signatory is approving the document. This could include one, uh, conducting the signatory by video, sorry, conducting the signing by a video call. Uh, number two, ensuring that the signed document is returned from the authorised signatories um, email account and that the authorised signatory confirms the signing and sending of the document by phone. And three, ensuring that those receiving the e-signed documents conduct some basic checks to ensure that there is nothing obviously suspect about them. For example, that it comes from an unknown or obscure email address. Great, thanks Holly. That's a lot to take in and it's very, it was very informative, so thank <laughs> you very much. A lot of our listeners will be interested to know the enforceability of the approaches that you mentioned. So could you run us through the enforceability of, say, um, the validity, actually, of electronic signatures under, say, English law? I'm just pulling out English law as that's one of the most common governing laws that we're seeing across bond and loan documents that we work with. Yeah, of course. Under English law, each of the methods that I've outlined um, previously constitute an electronic signature. In 2019, the Law Commission confirmed that under English common law, agreements, including deeds and other documents subject to statutory formalities um, could be validly e-signed and that there is no difference between the agreements validly signed and agreements validly e-signed with respect to their enforceability. The findings of the Law Commission were agreed and endorsed by the Law Chancellor and the Secretary of State for Justice in March 2020. Now, there's, there's no need for documents to reference an agreement between the parties to use e-signatures, but it is advisable for parties to agree on the practicalities of using e-signatures in advance to mitigate some of the risks that I outlined previously. Um, with respect to cross-border transactions, which all of our clients are, are heavily involved in, um, where they feature other governing laws, this is obviously going to need to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis with your lawyers and with local counsel. Um, our listeners may be interested to know that AO has a Rule Finder e-signature online subscription service available on AOSphere. It contains a law and practice analysis of e-signing in each jurisdiction and addresses cross-border legal issues that can arise when e-signing commercial agreements. Okay, that's very interesting. It's good to know that AO has put in the work so that our clients don't have to. <laughs> Always. <laughs> So if any of our clients are working on, say, internal jurisdictional surveys or would like to know how the service can benefit their day-to-day -day works, then please keep in contact with us and we can let you know more. And I believe we have trials and demos available. So Holly, in relation to the approaches that you mentioned to e-signing and execution, is there a best practice that we can recommend? Yes. Now, without sounding too much like an infomercial for DocuSign, best practice is to use the software option. Um, look, we are aware though for many of the transactions that our clients are involved with, they are not the party that is always likely to be running the signing and therefore able to dictate procedures. So in this instance, um, trustees and agents should be aware of the right questions to be asking of themselves and all the, the team that is co coordinating the signing. So what are some important questions that trustees and agents should think about before jumping right into using the software? Okay, so when thinking about themselves, they need to check their capacity and authority. 
um, are there any restrictions or requirements in constitutional documents or internal policies that, that would limit you in, in doing so? For example, information security policies for using cloud-based platforms or any other document storage policies. Um, and secondly, consider whether you actually require a wet ink original, for example, um, an original global note. Okay, it seems the overarching point is that clients should check their organizational level approach to e-signings before jumping right into using the software. Um, a lot of our clients will have internal policies with respect to keeping wet ink originals post-transaction, and I think a lot of them will be concerned and questioning how electronic will be concerned and questioning how electronic originals will actually comply with their internal policies. I believe the rationale behind having wet ink originals is that they may need to present a wet ink original in court uh, for enforceability reasons. So what's the guidance behind this? So the joint working party guidance published by the Law Society states that an English court would accept an electronic version of an executed document, a hard copy printout, or a composite of the electronically and wet ink signed document. So this means there is no evidential reason for a party to request a wet ink original. Of course, if local counsel are involved in a transaction, client may wish to confirm this approach can be taken um, in that instance too. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. And now let's jump into kind of the micro level transaction specific concerns. What should a trustee and agent think about for transaction specific um, deals? Okay, so look, we've touched on the fact that there may be some cross-border considerations. Um, you need to think about whether there are any overseas signatories. Does the place um, of signature have any legal significance? Uh, where might you want to enforce this particular document and whether there are any uh, regulatory implications? Secondly, um, you should be considering any registration requirements. So consider whether, um, if a document does need to be, to be registered with an authority, whether that authority is going to accept the e-signature. Um, considering whether notarizing or apostilling is required, and if so, will a document signed by e-signature be acceptable there? Um, and finally, ask whether the e-signing will impact any legal opinions that the trustee or, or to a lesser extent an agent may be entitled to with respect to that particular transaction. Great, thanks Holly. I think that's been really helpful for our participants, so thank you very much. As always, there's scope to talk about more, but we're just about out of time. Yeah. I'll say bye, thank you. Oh, thank you, Regina, bye. Well, that's it. A big thank you to Tim and Holly for sharing the spotlight with me today and a big thank you to all of you for joining.